Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. My name is Alex Hamilton. I'm Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures. And joining me for this episode is Ian Foley, partner at Level Ventures and our resident cartoonist. Welcome to the show, Ian. Uh, Thank you. Great, great to be here. It's fantastic to have you on. And what a show we have lined up this week's episode. We're talking about uh, a sector that is uh, integral in, in many ways to the development of many fintech startups, but but little often addressed, VCs. Um, we're going to be talking about venture capital and if French fresh-faced founders are struggling to see the wood for the VCs, so to speak, and dive into how starting one is and isn't just like starting a new fintech. But as always, we will kick off part one with our news and numbers segment, where we've gone out and found an interesting news story to talk about based on the number in the headline. Uh, it's traditional that our guest goes first. So, uh, Ian, what story has caught your eye in the news lately? Yeah, well, I was right intrigued by uh, seeing a couple of banks starting to make direct investments in VC funds. I mean, it seems to be a trend. It used to be the case that um, maybe uh, a, a bank would, would look at uh, from a distance, but now you're seeing direct investments across the board, not just a few innovative banks, but many banks starting to put their dollars to work as LPs, limited partners, in funds in the fintech space. So that's really interesting to see that, that that's a sense of willingness to dive in, not just innovators, but across. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the um, the one you're thinking of is the US bank has, uh, is a limited partner in um, Fin Venture Capital and Commerce Ventures, part of its uh, accumulation of work carried out by the bank's own dedicated fintech engagement unit, which it set up five years ago. And I guess the number there is two. But it's an interesting one. And like you said, Ian, it shows how lenders are getting deeper and deeper involved in the VC market and, and how perhaps the strategy is changing from waiting for a, a fintech to launch, become big and then acquire for massive money. Why not get in on the ground floor and become an investor straight away? Yeah, it's true. And um, I remember I previously was on, um, on the venture side myself at a corporate. This is where I was at Telecom Italia Venture. So um, in a different sector, I remember this is back in 2000. And at the time, Corporate venture was kind of the, the uh, redhead stepchild. It wasn't really that accepted by the institutionals. You'd always be lucky to get into the big deals. Um, you had to find a way to work with someone at Sequoia to get in or Excel. Nowadays, we're actually seeing the uh, corporates actually lead lead rounds, which is really a sense of not just um, being on the sidelines, but actually choosing valuations and doing the due diligence, which is a whole different level of, uh, of engagement. So I think that this, this news story is this uh, concept of a uh, bank going deeper and deeper into the world of, um, of investments. Yeah, and how, how, do you, how do you see that as different from the traditional way that banks invest in, in companies? I mean, is it a case of wanting to basically outsource the, the research and the, like you said, the due diligence to, to, to VC firms, or is it, is it a case of something different? Well, I think it depends upon risk appetite. So there are, like BBVA created their own, as I think HSBC and others have created their own dedicated venture funds. They have people on the ground and, uh, and being quite active. And that is one model. The other model is that um, we don't have the team and we don't have the expertise. Let's go invest in some funds. And the hard thing is getting into these funds. I mean, if you're trying to get into Excel or Sequoia or some of these, these funds, which are the tier one, it's really, really hard to gain access because you're competing as a potential investor in these funds with very large uh, pension funds like Ontario pension funds or folks who have been working with that fund for a long time. So it's hard to get in. And so what we're seeing is a number of these new entrant corporates 
are coming into dedicated fintech funds and also funds which um, may not be considered tier one, but maybe are new entrant funds. It's a way for them to get access to deal flow. So I think that's some of the trends we're seeing. Excellent. So, so um, this is more of a play for banks in, and uh, I want anyone who may or may not be listening from US banks to absolutely not take offense from this comment I'm about to make. But banks who are perhaps not of the, the tier one size, ones who you know want to get involved with the, the fintech scene and the investing in the fintech scene, but don't quite have the financial muscle to, to throw a load of money at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. And, and I think that there are some large funds, some of the large banks who try to get into going, going direct. And sometimes they've had their themselves burned in the process. A number of them have sold off their venture capital arms during the downturn. Remember their 2008 number of the funds were sold off. So this is almost like a, um, a rinse repeat. But this time, I think what's different is we're seeing a lot more of these banks, these venture arms actually leading rounds, choosing to, to do the valuation, choosing to come in. And so that, that's, I think, is, is a difference is they've been, they come in, come out, depending on the cycle. Some stay, but many come in, come out. And I think what's the difference this time is that they come in, they've come in a lot deeper than they have, have, have in previous cycles. Excellent. I mean, that, that, that sort of brings me quite nicely, roundly onto the, the story that I've brought to the table uh, for this episode, which is a, another one of banks sort of getting in deep straight away, which is about Standard Chartered. Now, Standard Chartered has set aside uh, $107 million for the creation of a new digital bank in Singapore. It's signed a joint venture with, the, with Singapore's National Trades Union Congress, it's going to be taking about 60% stake in the, in the new digital bank, um, yeah, worth the $107 million, while uh, NTUC will be taking uh, the remaining 40% valued at $71 million. Now, it's going through uh, Standard Charters SC Bank Holdings Limited, which is a subsidiary, um, which already holds a license from the Monetary Authority of Singapore, um, having already taken over its parent bank's operations in 2013. Um, interesting thing here is uh, Standard Chartered has already got previous experience. It launched Hong Kong-based MOX in September last year. And also it seems to be quite happy to invest this money without expecting returns. There was a statement on their website. that says the establishment of a digitally-led bank in Singapore is an important part of Standard Chartered's overall digital strategy, while it is also not expected to provide a meaningful earnings contribution in the near term. Uh, they add that it has the potential to create value over the medium term. Uh, it's interesting because uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore kicked off a bit of a gold rush a few years ago by announcing that it was going to hand out a restricted number of digital bank licenses. It ended up offering four, two retail licenses and two wholesale bank licenses, which there was a scramble. Um, Reuters reported in January 2020 that 50 companies had bid for the licenses. So it kind of shows another route that major banks can take into into a field without perhaps having to um, start things up from the ground up. Um, and I think that, that ties in quite nicely with what we were talking about a second ago, Ian. Yeah, I think to me, the whole Southeast Asia market is, is a really interesting market that hasn't really been tapped into as yet with that kind of focus around new entrant banks coming up with um, innovative product offerings. I think that's a there's, there's a lot of opportunity in Southeast Asia. People have done a lot in, in China, quite a bit in Japan, but I think places like Indonesia, the Philippines, great opportunities. So good to see that happening with Standard Chartered, and I hope they take that model across Asia.
Here we are in part two of the podcast. As you all know, this is our more interview-styled section where we focus the discussion into a specific industry topic or sector. We're talking about VCs today, the whole VC industry, cracking it wide open. And we're going to dive into it in just a second. First, I'm going to give Ian a minute or two to give us a rundown on his role at Level Ventures, uh, a little bit more about himself and his uh, wonderful talent for drawing cartoons. So take it away, Ian. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I'm based out here in uh, Silicon Valley, been here 24 years, uh, left England about um, 25 years ago now, and um, been here both as a venture capitalist in the Valley and um, doing investment banking. And then I thought of not helping other people get themselves successful, let's take a crack at doing it myself. And so luckily, had a run with some super smart people. We did uh, four startups, of which um, three went to M&A and one went to public. And my last company I sold to a PE fund. And then since then, I've really been working with Level Ventures. And Level Ventures is, is really focused on helping emerging managers. So that's someone who is emerging VC, someone who wants to start out their first-time fund. And what we do at Level Ventures is we help that person get their fund started. We provide um, support in terms of infrastructure, capital, help them get inductions to limited partners. And really, we focus a lot on trying to broaden out the mix of people who are in this industry. It is a, historically a, um, dominated by, by folks who have gone through a, a typical a tier one education from a similar background. So what our idea is bring in diverse talent. Because on our thesis here is that you know, diversity of individuals requires a diversity of thinking and helps us identify new and unique opportunities. So we're really focused on helping emerging managers raise fund one and then fund two. And the other piece I do, which is fun, is I'm, as I was mentioned, is I'm a cartoonist. I like to explain things in a, in, a, in a more simpler fashion. I started off way back as a journalist, actually, um, was university, basically to go and pay my way. Uh, so that worked well, but I just felt increasingly that my articles were yet another tree falling in the forest. So I thought, let's try something different. Let's, let's try and do cartoons, which are much more shareable, and to use a cartoon to simplify complex uh, topics. And so that's what I focus on. I focus on AI, the venture community, and, uh, and blockchain. Um, so that's me. Thank you. Brilliant. And uh, you can see some of, of Ian's cartoons on the FinTech Futures website. I'm sure we'll uh, have a chance to plug that before we finish up this episode. <laughs> um, but on to VC. So I'm going to hit you with an enormous question right off the bat, Ian, which is... Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, you're going to be answering for the whole VC industry here when we when we ask, you know, the fintech industry in particular has always been attracted quite a lot of investment. But over the past few years, we've seen quite an explosion in the amount of VC money heading towards new firms and, and in particular new firms, firms that have, you know, been founded uh, less than 12 months prior to their first funding. So why is there so much money floating around these days and why are so many firms focusing on new fintechs? Well, I suppose the way to start is the thing about like, you know, these funds get started for the sole reason of returning capital to their investors. So <laughs> that's the main reason why the fintech market is very um, attractive for a number of, of, of reasons. I'm sure many of your other guests have talked a lot about you know, things like regulation, open banking, the whole embedded finance, you know, the whole API economy, all this stuff, which I'm sure we've talked about ex- ex- a lot on this on this uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. But I think I should you know, focus on why the VCs in particular, what, what's attracting new funds. And I think it's down to the returns. I mean, if you think about it from this perspective, I think in the last was it the last year we've seen about 50 billion 
a new funding into the VC space. That's from like, like January to so mid, mid-year. Uh, of which, just think about one instance. So Stripe, as you may know, recently acquired Afterpay for 30 billion or so. So therefore, think about that. For one company, one single company is almost returning the amount of money that was raised in, in that one half of the year. So it is a, a, a seeing a lot of billion dollar in investments and also a great number of returns too. So on the return basis alone, the market is very attractive. And, and of course, the um, reason it's attractive is because there's a lot of new uh, opportunities coming in from, as we talked about, deregulation, consumer demand. And uh, as, as our folks may know, uh, this whole pandemic has, has driven a lot of people to be more online. And you've seen huge increases in finance and trading apps. I think, uh, I think the average person is now about four hours a day, I think they are now, on, on apps. And uh, one of the biggest app in terms of the category that's the biggest jump in the whole pandemic was around finance and trading. I think that's 63% of increase in, in those apps alone. So mm-hmm. we're seeing consumer demand, we're seeing market evolution and deregulation. All this is creating a great environment for VCs to, to find great companies who have innovative ideas, back them and support them and see the return that can justify them raising fund too. Excellent. So, I mean, without meaning to be too crass about it, you know, it sounds like, you know, at the minute, fintech is a good bet. And um, so what about someone who, who might be listening to this podcast and thinking, you know, oh, maybe maybe my idea for, you know, decentralized whatever in finance, maybe that's not, maybe I don't want to actually start do my own fintech startup. Maybe I want to start my own VC. Um, so in what ways is, is starting a VC like and not like starting a technology startup? Well, in some respect, they're quite similar. Um, although I'd say that the time horizons are maybe slightly longer than um, so, although starting to converge. So, a typical fund is about a ten-year effort in terms of raise until it closes. Now, in the meantime, you may be raising multiple funds over that time period. But the the average length of a single fund is, is about eight to ten years. But I would say that the um, that what's similar is if put it in this context that would uh, maybe a um, fund relate to. So the fund itself is the product. So what you are uh, having a thesis around, let's say decentralized finance or AI, that, that's your product. And then your customers are the LPs, the limited partners. Those are the people who invested in your fund and want a return and want a return multiple times better than they could if they parked their money in a mutual fund or something like that. So the idea behind is it's similar in that regard in terms of You've got to get the right product. We're going to differentiate it product. You've got to understand your customers intimately, understand what customers are right at the beginning of your product and what customers are right as you start to scale. And so one of the first and most important things is, is I suppose, is, is much more important for the VC fund is getting a thesis. And a thesis is your investment thesis. This is your like idea, your unique idea. And if you talk to limited partners, limited partners can be anyone such as a Know, high net worth individual who may want to invest in your fund. It could be your uh, your uncle has a few million to spare, or it could be instead institutional. And institutional are funds that often large pension funds. And one of the more active ones is called like Ontario, uh, the Ontario Pension Fund. And so these these are very large institutions. And what they want to see is a unique thesis. It can't just be oh, I think AI is really interesting and I'm going to invest in it. It has to be I have this view that the industry, the AI industry is going to evolve um, with this particular outcome. And I'm going to go and find companies 
that deliver on that outcome. It could be, you know, I believe that it's going to be a focus on um, B2B and how B2B applies on a segment basis, on, on industry segments and using AI. So it's going to be the more unique your thesis and, and the more that you can uh, create a um, something differentiable, the more likely you'll stand out because you, you talk to many of these RPs and, and they get lots and lots of people coming up with them with great ideas for funds. I mean, it does sound, you know, being a venture capitalist is, sounds quite attractive thing to do, but actually to get money is much, much harder because you would be really differentiable. And so that's the hardest thing is to, is to get a unique thesis. And then I suppose that it's then probably getting the deal flow. So when you come to the um, prospective limited partner, the potential investor in you, you've got to say, well, I really believe in you know, B2B AI and how I believe that there's going to be certain segments that say auto or clean energy. This is how I'm going to apply. These are two areas I'm going to go after. And then you have to demonstrate that you actually have deal flow. That means there are founders, you know, individuals who are experts in that space. You have a network to prove you can get a constant flow of, of great companies coming away. And, and why is it you can do it and other people cannot? So that's another thing to prove. And then the third thing is, um, and this comes even more important as you uh, launch your fund and then, and then actually start to scale up, is the infrastructure. Because being a fund manager is, is a lot of it is, um, if, if you're starting out your fund, is getting um, the right reporting together. It's getting dealing with uh, the, some of the regulatory requirements you have to do as, as a fund manager. It's the amount of time you spend actually out in the field looking for, for, for new opportunities, it's really about 40 to 50%. The other 50% is on the internal stuff and reporting back and getting the, yourself prepared for your next funds you mean to go out and raise. So that's quite similar to, to an individual who has their own, own company. And I think some of these activities, most founders don't think about when they're talking to a VC fund because they're still thinking that, oh, well, this individual has has uh, this capital and looking to deploy it. But understanding you know, what's going through their heads is really important to, to you know how to position yourself and be intelligent as you approach these uh, these VCs. Excellent. I think that's perhaps there, there can sometimes be a, uh, a misconnection between those founding startups and those founding funds or founding VCs. And I think there's there's a lot more similarities than there are differences. So, I mean, quickly, um, on, on just on this point, because you've really helped, I think, a lot of people understand sort of the, the first few steps for those looking to, to create a, a VC or the first few steps of a VC fund manager. So if we flip it back to the other side, to those who are currently starting fintechs or looking to raise the first, set, the first seed funding or even pre-seed, you know, how does having an understanding of the, the what drives a VC fund manager and, and their LPs, how does that help a, a new startup? Mm. Well, I think it's like um, just the same way that you as a, uh, as a startup founder are looking to approach your first customer. It's like you, know, you spend a lot of time researching them, understanding what motivates them. You look online and try to understand like what, what is the information they may have. You know, you do customer segmentation. You look up them up on LinkedIn. You, you spend a lot of time when you're looking at a new customer to try and understand who they are. And the same trying to understand who is potentially about to invest in you, it requires equal, if not more, amount of, of work and effort. And so I think maybe understanding motivation is, is just a way for people here on, uh, on this podcast to get their, their minds sort of turning on this. So 
I think the first thing to think about is what's the key thing that helps a VC manager in terms of thinking of what they need to do with it. And then the key thing to think about is that they care about assets under management. They want to keep on raising capital. So the more capital they have, uh, in many instances, the, the more they have to deploy and the higher the management fee. Now, there are some VCs who want to stay within a certain bound because they think that they have too much capital, it's harder to deploy. But if you talk to the particularly these growth stage VCs, it's all about the sheer amount of capital they have under management and the turning of capital, turning of funds. In some respect, you could almost say it's similar to an individual who's on, on a uh, selling cars. They want to turn cars. You no know, fund managers want to turn funds. Um, and so that's the first thing is to think about that they're looking to turn capital. And that means is that they want to deploy capital quickly. So if it's like a 10-year time horizon, they want to be able to deploy it within the first five years or so, have some leftovers dry powder for maybe follow-on investors for investments, but really to deploy it quickly so they can go out and raise another fund um, and, and then get management fees on that fund too. So that's one thing is think about that turning of capital. Understand where, if you're talking to a growth stage venture fund, where they are in their fund. Are they at the beginning of the fund, the end of the fund? The end of the fund may have less capital to deploy for you. At the beginning, they're going to have a lot more capital. So that's one consideration. Second is that often a founder may come up and share his, his or her great idea. And the, the, often the answer from a, from a VC is, I'm sorry, that, that doesn't give us the return we want. And the return may be, you know, six or five X. You know, oh my gosh, you know, uh, if I give you a dollar, Alex, and it could promise you five or six X back or had a good chance of doing so. I think you would take that, <laughs> take that, wouldn't you? I mean, you know, I, I never want to turn down free money. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, many of these uh, venture backed startups aren't always free money. But yes, it's a, it sounds a good return to getting five or six X. But actually, that's not enough. If from a VC, many of them, when they get the capital from their limited partner, there's a requirements for a hurdle rate. And a hurdle rate is about eight, eight percent, which means that the VC does not get any money until they hit that hurdle rate. So they've got to make at least eight times on the money before they see return. So therefore, when you come to them with a 10x deal, they, they think, hmm, maybe that's interesting, but it's not going to be, not going to really be as, as great if you come to a 15 or 20x. Mm. And let me break this down a bit as why why they're requiring such, such huge re, um, returns. That's not just a hurdle rate, because that's, that's the flaw. The other thing to consider is that if you think about the general portfolio, typically it's split, you know, if you look at as a general average, a third, a third, a third, in terms of a third of the money that a VC may deploy is, is unfortunately doesn't work out. They invest in startups that don't, don't deliver. And, and that's the, the nature of, of venture. It's a very risky business. A third may do, do well, also rands, and so they, they may make some money and they make like two, three X. But what they really need, they need those three that uh, a third of their of their portfolio to be huge you know make the fund uh, back type successes because it's only by doing that that you based upon two things one is the distribution I just described you know there's you've now you're trying to work out how to get uh, great returns out of a third of the money the other thing is that even if you're an investor you often have to keep on investing and you get diluted in the venture in, in, in the portfolio company that you're investing in so you don't 
when people say 10x, it's not as though you put in a dollar and get 10 back. You may be multiple rounds of investments, so you actually get diluted the way down. So that's why these VCs do need to make really substantial returns mm. to, to bring money back. And, and I think uh, you may have heard of this, is that um, something like 5%, 5% of venture funds represent 80% of all returns. And that's and the reason is because it's so hard to get really high returns. So maybe you could be successful and you um, can get your first venture fund and fund one raised. And maybe you make some good returns, you squeeze out fund two. But to get to fund three, fund four, you've got to consistently be hitting very, very good averages to be able to give the return that you need. And therefore, that's why, as you were as a founder, may understand now why it is that these these funds have such high requirements. Mm. And the final one I'll just give is, um, this is understanding the motivation of folks within the fund. So if you are a, um, let's say, medium to large scale fund, you have people who are associates, analysts, principals, partners, then you have operating partners. This is a kind of the, the, the category of people within a fund. If you are looking to move up the ladder within that fund, you have to demonstrate that your investments you found are increasing in value. And so one thing to consider is, is as you're going to, to talk to partners, is that where are they in the stage of their career? Do they need to make a, um, to, to go from a junior partner or principal to partner or senior partner? Where are they? Because if they're on that track, they want to move up, you may find them more willing to take risk than someone who may be an operating partner. Um, who may be more established. So, so just think about every time, you know, just the same way you talk to a customer, you try and understand the motivations behind them as individuals and what drives them. Think about the motivations behind people you're talking to because a venture fund isn't an amorphous whole. It is a you know, orgasm growing. <laughs> there are people who have, have motivations. There's, there's a corporation or the firm has motivations. So that's the thing to think about. Yeah, I find that very interesting because... Uh, oftentimes people will look at these mega startups, uh, ones that have become, you know, huge in size and scale. You think of firms like, for example, uh, the Challenger New Bank in South America that is enormous now, but only just becoming profitable or some challenges in the UK that are only just becoming profitable or startups that everyone, when it comes time for financial statements, everyone says, good Lord, they, they made a huge loss last year. Um, you know, to, and I, I want to come on to one last question, but I want to just ask this one first, which is, you know, is that is that people chasing the money, chasing the VC funding because they want to be able to promise those those returns to their investors? Is is that where you know the spend to make ethos comes in? Well, it's it, there's lots of motivations at work there. Um, there's a sense of another thing to consider too is the relationship between funds. So, for example, it's important to understand, and when you're as you as a potential looking for investment, you should look at what VC funds invest and syndicate with others. And so one approach I used to do when I was out doing my own startup is I would identify and come up with a list of the funds that um, I knew worked together. And I would go to one of them, pitch them, and then go to another one who I knew was syndicated. And by, so bring them together, because I knew behind the scenes they were talking. So this is, this is a way that it was, was to, so, to bring them together uh, myself and, and sort of manage that as, as a syndicate. The other piece also to consider is this concept of fear of missing out or their LPs mentioned them. Well, what's your investment in that particular segment? So for example, if you are a growth stage venture fund and you don't have you know, a DeFi 
portfolio company, you know, if your LP start asking, well, what's your strategy around that? <laughs> you are more likely to be open to being investment there just to, to round out your portfolio because they think about it from a visa. They're looking to create, particularly these, these growth stage one, um, a portfolio of investments so that should one or the other be successful, then they can have their bets managed across this portfolio. So that's other thing to bear in mind. So maybe what you're referring to in, in your question is that um, some of these large raises, these challenger banks may not necessarily be profitable, but you're seeing some venture funds invest in them because it seems to be a growing segment. Then maybe it's a de-risked investment they make because they see a not someone like Ribbit or Tiger or Sequoia already in the round that they feel comfortable that due diligence has been done. And this is a way to gain access and round out their portfolio to get a, a breadth of, uh, of potential upside. Great. And uh, I apologize to uh, the final question I wanted to ask on this. And I, I need, cause I was just so interested on the, what you were saying that I had to jump in with an extra question there, but um, <laughs> so I don't want to do this next question to disservice because it's obviously an extremely important one. And you, you mentioned it at the top when you're introducing yourself about how um, you're interested in ensuring that there's greater diversity in the VC sector. I mean, like FinTech, yeah. it has a diversity issue, both in terms of gender and race and indeed economic background. So how, how, from your perspective, can that be challenged and changed um, by those who are already in the sector and those from without as well? Yeah. So maybe I'll put some numbers around this to give a sense that so the the challenge is actually predominantly gender and and there is definitely some race, but it's predominantly gender. So I'll just give you an example here that I think in the US, it's like about 12% of all VCs are women. Yeah, 50% of us. (laughs) So that's a huge delta, massive delta. There is also underrepresentation in African Americans in the US. For example, somewhere like three percent of all fund managers are African American, yet they represent thirteen percent of the population. So th- those are the biggest. I mean, there's the ones which there's a lot of Asian Americans in venture. So that is not a, a general across the board. It's a, a, um, a race issue. No, I think it's it's specific types of races, African Americans. But the biggest issue is around female involvement and. There is some great efforts being made around that. In the US, we have this group uh, called All Raise, which is a female-focused group uh, who come together and support each other, provide education. And what we do at Level Ventures is that we put together events. We do podcasts um, and panels. And these panels bring together people from diverse backgrounds. So we had one recently with a, a group called Startout. Startout is the largest LGBTQ group of entrepreneurs and investors in the US. And we had this panel we put together on how do diverse fund managers get their fund one started, how they build the, the um, and use their network to get started. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of appetite actually right now for helping bring more diversity. And I think people recognize the value of it. I think I saw recently, Andreessen Howitz created a fund around that. Um, I know folks at Precursor Ventures uh, who set, set up their fund, which was you know, had had a, a strong African American bent to it. So it's like I think there's a lot of positive action going on, but there's a long way to go. There's, there's a lot of effort that to because I think if you get great female investors, it will make it a great way to bring in great female founders, and and that's what's really exciting is if we can. Um, really enable the, the true potential uh, where we're, we're, we're directing capital to great ideas and great people and, and people aren't um, worried about coming in because they don't feel comfortable about presenting to, for example, an all-male 
investment committees. So I think that's the sort of thing we want to get to. We want to get to a position where people, the best ideas and the best people are able to be brought to the forefront. Here we are in part three for everybody's favorite section, the fintech jail. For those who don't know, this is where we ask for an industry term, a buzzword, or a trend that our guest has seen or heard enough of in the industry. Uh, we'll then talk about whether it deserves a place in the jail, or if it's already in there, whether it needs warrants an extended sentence, or in fact, if it's in there, whether it deserves to come out again. Uh, not many cases have been dismissed so far, and the, the jail is uh, fit to bursting. But let's see if we can put one more inmate in there. So Ian, what, what buzzword or topic do you want to be banished away for good? Yeah, I was, I was thinking of, of series seed or like pre-seed or all this like this uh, grayness area that exists around basically it's a seed investment. It's um, okay. um, <laughs> I feel that um, I had so many times that people come with me like they got their series seed or, or, or pre-seed or it's, it's angel plus or whatever it is. seems to be this. Um, this term it is, is is very loose, but it's basically, um, I, I think it, it's a, it's a term that needs to be in jail because it's, it has an identity crisis. It needs, it needs to be put in to sort itself out. Has mm. some, um, get, get itself straightened out while in jail, maybe. Or maybe twist it further. If it's in jail, maybe the other bad eggs will like impact it. What do you think? <laughs> um, well, I mean, what's, what's your particular grievance with, with Series C or, or the pre as a phrase? Do you just think that, that it's just a nomenclature thing, that it just needs to change up? You could just call it Fund 1, Fund 2, etc.? Well, I just think it needs to be called seed. And then if it hasn't, the terms have become too broad. Uh, I think that, um, for example, in right now, the average, I think, average Series A valuation is something like 43 million. I mean, it's like, it, so therefore when you see seed investments or Series C investments at, I know, 15 or 10 million valuation, this is no longer, this, this feels like a, no longer really accurate of a sense of a seed it's a or a, a serious seed it's, I, I wish we had clearer nomenclature around this and and we'll be able to understand rather than having to you know, further ask lots of other questions it's a lack of clarity that's the, the wish i would have is there is there an interest in firms to um very quickly is there an interest in firms to extend the number of rounds that they have you know pre-seed seed a b c to make it seem like they're getting lots of little people make it seem like they've got more funding rather than just have one big round where everyone's involved? Um, yeah, I suppose that there is, there, there may be that viewpoint, although I, I tend to think the more times you say you've, you've had rounds, the more I think in my head you'd be more diluted. Mm. I, I don't think there's an necessary advantage about saying I've done, before my Series A, I'm on my, my third, my third go-round or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I know people, one thing that has been popular is some of these um, notes that have, uh, have, have been used as a way basically to extend the runway without dialing up a valuation. And that's what also has, has contributed to this, this confusion because uh, people create a new round. It's basically extension of a note. It's a loan to certain extent. And yet they feel a need to call it something. And so I think that's part of the problem. It's a use of notes has, has somewhat uh, muddied the waters. Um, I agree with you. I think it, I think it should go in there. Um, uh, Perhaps enough, nothing too harsh. I mean, we can't be throwing it away on a life sentence or a 25 years or anything like that. It seems like a, a case of, you know, a rap on the knuckles, maybe a, 
maybe a few sessions, group therapy sessions with the, with the rest of the, the in, in, inmates of the jail to try, sort of figure out what exactly Precede wants to be. Um, but yeah, I think I think we can put it in there. Maybe it could be like one of those um, like open open prisons, you know, like you yeah, know, it's, absolutely. Um, it's like white white collar crime. Yeah. Um, don't mix the hard criminals, lest it may get really bad. You know, it might might get tainted. But... Exactly. We won't we won't put it in with uh, with general population, which includes you know AI and blockchain and or or influencer or influencer. <laughs> Because you know that that if, if influencer and serious seed or whatever get together, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen there. Oh yeah, exactly. Be, yeah, dangerous times. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thanks for joining me. But before we sign off, uh, Ian, do you have any uh, socials or websites you want to plug? Yeah, the best way to get hold of me is on LinkedIn, Ian Foley. Uh, very very simple. And if you want to see some of my cartoons, you can either see them at this esteemed publication. We're out here. <laughs> thank, thank you, Alex. <laughs> Um, or I have my own site called Ian Toons, I-A-N Toons, T-O-O-N-S. And uh, check them out um, and uh, hopefully it'll give you a laugh. Absolutely. I would definitely recommend you do so. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at ADHamilton91 and on LinkedIn by searching my name. Also, please check out a new report released by Fintech Futures into the digitalization of banking. Is it Fintech versus Fintech these days? Read the report to find out. Um, As for Fintech Futures as well, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at at FintechFutures and on LinkedIn just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our gorgeous logo. If you like the podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. And as always, we appreciate any help you can give us to find new listeners by leaving a review or recommending us to friends. That's it. We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.